Today's scripture reading is from Zechariah 7, 1 through 14. Don't worry, I get the hard words. So please read with me the verses in bold. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves. Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her? and the south and the lowland were inhabited. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts, as I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, said the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they was desolate so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm... Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and we're grateful that you can be with us this morning. If you're joining us for a first time or the first time in a long time, um, we've been this fall in a series we've been calling Divine Intervention, and we've been going through the minor prophets. And if you're interested, they call them the minor prophets because they're shorter than the other prophets, not because they're less important. And if that is the reason um, that the minor prophets are minor, then I'm going to make an argument this morning that Zechariah should be classified as a mid-major prophet because he's, a, he's longer than most of the minors. We recently had some friends. Uh, we, we, we watched their kids for a weekend while this uh, husband and wife went on a birthday trip to New York City. And uh, I expected when they come back that we would get reports of their time of fine dining and Broadway shows. And there was some of that. They got to do a bunch of that. But I was a little bit surprised that on a birthday trip, maybe not so surprised when I thought about it, uh, to hear them say that one of the days they were in New York City, they spent almost the whole day, almost completely in silence, 
at the 9-11 Museum where the Twin Towers had once stood before the terrorist attack in uh, 2001. And they described how even though they had gone for a, uh, a celebration, they had never been to New York since then, and they just felt like they had to do this thing if they were going to be in that city. And I think we all do this. I think we all feel the need to commemorate important, certainly tragic events in our lives, in the that the history of our country or the history of our family, we have as a culture some of those cultural holidays, right? We've got Veterans Day and we've got Memorial Day and we've got Independence Day, days uh, that we commemorate events that changed the lives of people in our country forever. And, um, and then we also have personal days like that, and maybe you have a ritual or uh, a regular thing that you do because of some reason or some event that happened. Maybe it's something that you do during the, the national anthem as it's being sung at a, at a sporting event or uh, somewhere that you go or something that you eat on the birthday of someone who you loved who is no longer with you, a deceased grandparent or a child or a spouse. Some people do these sorts of things uh, almost superstitiously, right? I, what would happen if I, never, if I didn't do this on grandma's birthday? And sometimes these kinds of rituals can be, become so important to people that they protect them with almost a religious fervor. You, this has to be done. What will happen if we don't? In the year 586 B.C., the lives of Jewish people living in the city of Jerusalem changed forever. In that year, the Babylonian Empire sacked Jerusalem and destroyed not just the protective wall around the city, but also the temple where Jewish people worshipped. It was an event that the prophets, uh, prophets like Jeremiah, had long warned was going to happen if God's people continued to ignore him and serve themselves and to serve other gods. In the book of Jeremiah, we read, um, he says that the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land and they shall come at the entrance to the gates of Jerusalem against its walls and around and against all the cities of Judah. I'll declare my judgments against them, God said foretelling that this was going to happen unless something changed. And just like they did to all of the people that they conquered, the Babylonians came into Judah, they came into Jerusalem, and they exiled the people that lived there to Babylon. This was part of their program. They took people that they had conquered, they removed them, and they, they placed them in a new place where they were uh, planning to reprogram them, right? Planning to integrate them into the Babylonian worldview and the Babylonian economy and the Babylonian religion. And so exiled Jews were removed to Babylon. And we're told in the Old Testament that in that time where they were displaced, they began to practice some rituals. In fact, they began to hold four different holidays every year, four major fasts. 
to commemorate the events of the fall of Jerusalem. On the ninth day of the fourth month, which is not actually April 9th, but it's just easier for me to think about it. They had a different calendar. But on April 9th, they mourned the day that the wall of Jerusalem was breached. On the 18th day of the fifth month, which is not actually May 18th, they fasted to remember the burning of the city and the temple. On the third day of the seventh month, not July 3rd, they remembered when the Jewish governor was assassinated by Babylonian invaders, and on the 10th day of the 10th month, not October 10th, they commemorated the day that Babylon laid siege to the city. And so, not too much unlike us, they had regular holidays. They had breach day, they had governor's day, they had siege day, and they had temple doom day. And these were days that they would fast, and they would sing songs like we read in Psalm 137, where it says, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept because we remembered Zion. And in the midst of that sorrow, God spoke to them through prophets. He promised, him, he promised them his grace even in the midst of this situation. In fact, we read uh, that, uh, we read it, in Zechariah 29, uh, it says there, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you, and I'll fulfill to you the promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you hope, to give you future and a hope. And so it was the expectation. It had been told to these uh, people that this was going to last 70 years, that they were going to be in a place not of their birth for 70 years because of their unfaithfulness. And so for like 50 years, every year, four holidays, breach day, siege day, temple tomb day. For like 50 years, it continued even as the Persian Empire swept through and overpowered the Babylonian Empire until in 538 B.C., Cyrus the Great, who is now the Persian Empire, gave permission for a first group of exiles to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and rebuild their homes and rebuild the temple that had been sacked. This is like 48 years after the fall of Jerusalem. And if you're interested, the books of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament are the historic stories of those events, the people returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the temple. And in those books, we hear about a young leader named Zerubbabel who came from the line of King David. We hear about a priest named Joshua. And we hear about two prophets, Haggai, who Pastor Daniel taught on last week, and Zechariah, who we read about today. Two prophets who are sort of speaking God's, they're speaking God's word at this sort of transition point towards or uh, in, the, in the gap between the, the chasm that's opening that's going to be the, the period between the Old Testament and the New. And they're prophets of hope. There's a lot more to be happy about in Zechariah than in a lot of the minor prophets. And yet, Zechariah, as I said, 
is one, uh, it's actually one of the longest minor prophets. It weighs in at uh, 14 chapters. So uh, I, again, I don't know, you want to go mid-major, you want to go triple-A, this is not minor league, right? It's a pretty significant book. And in many ways, Zechariah is everything you probably think about when you think about what a prophetic book in the Bible is supposed to be, if you ever spend time thinking about what a prophetic book in the Bible is supposed to be. First six chapters are full of bizarre visions that Zechariah has in a dream. There's horsemen, there's women with stork's wings, there's flying scrolls and olive trees, and there's an angelic interpreter that explains these visions as signs that the exile is almost over. That a new Jerusalem will be a light to the nations and that uh, God's messianic kingdom will come if the people are faithful to God, unlike their forebearers who were carried into exile. And the last five chapters of Zechariah are filled with an oracle, a, a foretelling that foresees that Messiah and that messianic kingdom so clearly that uh, they, it sees so clearly, particularly the fact that Jesus would be a, a humble servant who suffers for our salvation. That And you might not realize this, but uh, it's so significant that Zechariah is, besides the Psalms, the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. See if this sounds familiar, maybe from your Christmas time or your Easter time listening. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah 9.9, quoted in Matthew 21. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Zechariah 11, quoted in Matthew 27. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12 in John chapter 19. And it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Zechariah 13, Matthew Quoted in Matthew 26, just a few examples. So visions in the beginning, oracles in the end, and right in the middle of the book, chapters 7 and 8, between Zechariah's dreams and before these messianic foretellings, there is this exchange between the prophet Zechariah and a delegation of Jews from the city of Bethel whose names Cameron read. And it cuts right to the heart of the difference between true devotion and superstition. Zechariah 7, which we read this morning, cuts right to the heart of the difference between ritual and, uh, and real faith, between true and false religion. And it points directly to the purpose that the temple was built for in the first place. And so this morning, just... Uh, three thoughts, three points from Zechariah chapter 7. False religion, true, li true religion, and the true temple. False religion. The moment is sometime after this group of Israelites have returned to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple had begun. 
It's probably more like 60 years after the fall of Jerusalem, somewhere in there. And Zechariah's visions have rejuvenated the work, and uh, the people are exhilarated to be doing this thing, building the temple. And some commentators estimate that after decades, the project was just a few years from completion. The second temple in Jerusalem is almost done. The prophets were speaking again. The temple was nearly rebuilt. They were nearly 70 years. They were nearly to that 70 years that Jeremiah had foretold that the exile would last. And so this delegation comes to Jerusalem from a nearby town in Bethel, and they ask Zechariah, this is verse 3, should we weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? They're talking about that fasting holiday. Uh, that they have been holding to memorialize the, the day that the first temple was destroyed. They're talking about Temple Doom Day. And they're saying, look, the second temple is almost built. Do we still celebrate Temple Doom Day? It's like, if, if this is helpful, it's like the kids in the back of the car, right? They're saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now, before we say anything else, it's interesting to note that the word of God in the Old Testament actually only ever instructed one day of fasting during the Jewish year, and that was the day of atonement. Read about that in Leviticus 23. That's the day uh, when God invited people to fast and lament and repent from their sin. So the people had never actually ever been required to fast in the fifth month for Temple Doom Day. God had asked his people to fast and repent of their sin on the day of atonement. And ironically, the temple, the first temple, was destroyed expressly because they had failed to do so. Not because they had failed to fast, but because they had failed to recognize their rebellion against God and repent, which is the, which is the point of atonement. Lord, forgive us of our sin. And so now they had spent 60 plus years lamenting the consequences that they had received, lamenting that the temple had burned, that their city had been razed. And that's what Zechariah zeroes in on immediately. He says, look, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you ate and when you drink, don't you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? He says, look, you're fasting, you're mourning, you're lament. It was never for the Lord in the first place. There's some purpose to it, and there's, there's purpose for nostalgia and uh, a commemoration, but what you're doing now, this is not a lament for sin or a sign that you're turning uh, from your sin or a sign of repentance. This is self-pity, some kind of self-centered attempt maybe to buy back what had been lost, right? We'll, we're going to fast, we're going to... Uh, we're going we're gonna to, by self-discipline and self-flagellation, try to earn our way back. And now they've almost got what they want, a new city, a new temple, a return. And they're ready to quit fasting and start feasting. This is actually the way most of our religious operation works. Why do people meditate or intermittently fast? Most of the time, we, I would say, self-improvement, right? Because we have decided that it would be healthy for us to be more spiritual. Why go to church? Why read the scripture? Why serve? Because 
Most of the time, we've tried other things, and they haven't given us the feeling or the experience or the benefit that we want, and so maybe this will do it. Or because we feel like we need to balance our karma, right? We, uh, we got to get our lives back in balance after too many years of wild living, so we're going to do, you know, we're balance it out with some years of church attendance and good citizenship. Or because there's a guy there, or because there's a girl there, or because church is the kind of place to meet the kind of guy or girl that I want to meet. Or some kind, maybe it's some kind of way to manipulate God into giving me what I want out of life or give me back what I've lost. May I have tried everything else to get back on track. Maybe this is it. Is God, without any of those things, not worthy of our praise and our worship? When God entered into a covenant with his people, what he promised actually was not a temple or a city or a wall for prosperity. He said, I will be their God. He promised himself. Now, this was what a saving relationship with God was all about, being restored to the one who made us for himself. Not merely that we would receive Uh, his blessings and his gifts, prosperity and peace and joy. He wants to give us himself. And what does he want in return? A fast on the 18th day of the fifth month every year? No. What does love ever want in return except to be loved? In the Proverbs, God says, give me your heart. The fast is not the issue, Zechariah would say, but the heart, the reason that motivates the fast. Why are you doing this? Why are these folks coming from Bethel? Are they come to repent their sin or to get out of an obligation? So how do you know? How do you know about the condition of your heart? Well, here's a simple question that you might ask your own heart. What is moving me to action right now? Love of God and hatred of sin that I see in my heart? Or is it protection from is it protection of self and hatred of the consequences that I'm experiencing in my life? True religion. So that's what Zechariah is confronting when he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That's his delegation of people whose names Cameron pronounced come, and they ask this direct question, and Zechariah's response is actually really Jesus-esque, I think. You ever notice that you know, Jesus has this tendency not to answer the question and instead point the inquiry to where they should have been asking the question in the first place? Zechariah suggests that if they are interested in true religion and true spirituality, uh, that it's recognized not by the rituals that are kept or the obligations that people do, but it's recognized by the presence of the character of God amongst the people. These things that he says are actually descriptions of God's character, embodied, justice, mercy, 
compassion. Zechariah is looking for, for evidence in this group of people of these things that are found in God himself. Are they after God? Are they after who God is? This has always been God's stated objective, that, we would, that he wants us to be more like him. That's the invitation. Be holy as I am holy, says Leviticus chapter 11. Have you ever had that feeling that the longer two people are married, the more they start to look like each other? Right? That's actually what happens when you love someone. You, you want to emulate the best parts of them, right? You want the parts that attracted you, that you don't have, that, that attracted you to them. You want more of the things you love about them. And sometimes you want to have the same haircut. I don't know why. <laughs> but this is what the book of James is talking about when he says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. If we really love God, then we'll want to become more like him. Be holy as I am holy. Be just as I am just. Be compassionate as I am compassionate. And how do we know that this isn't what the folks from Bethel were up to? Well, to begin with, they come, come over from the next town over not to lend a hand to the folks in Jerusalem who are laboring to build a temple, but to ask, hey, since these guys are almost done, can we relax? So how do you know? How do you know if you're really after the, the heart of God and his character? How do we know what the character of God is like so that we could identify it if we saw it in ourselves? How do we know that we're not simply making God out in our own image or after the, cult after the values of our cultural moment? Well, Zechariah says to them, hear the law. And the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Had the prophets, had, the, had the, the, the priests that had come from Bethel just read their Bibles, he says, they would have known how Zechariah would answer. He's, he would, they, they could have read Micah 6.8 and known that the sign was not about the ritual, but it was about the character. Do justice, love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. That's Micah's reply, which we read earlier in our series, to an eerily similar question from another group. What does the Lord require of us? And Micah summarizes the greatest commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Micah says this, do justice, love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. And what Zechariah actually says is that this is exactly how Judah got into this mess. Uh, it's how the exile came about in the first place. It's because people refused to pay attention and turn. They turned a stubborn shoulder, he says, and stopped up their ears that they might not hear. And they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear and uh, understand the word of God and what the prophets had said. And so... It's, he says, God has put his character on display in his word. And I suppose that a lot of sermons end right here. So if you're taking notes, the two points are, self-centered spirituality is false religion. Stop it. Read your Bible so you can be more just, merciful, and compassionate like Jesus. The problem is, 
every one of us is hopelessly self-centered because uh, we're fallen sinners living in a fallen world. And so to simply keep those two uh, instructions is a hopelessly impossible task. Even our best offerings in the world are mired with strange, uh, polluted with self-motivation. Even our uh, desire to read the scriptures is, we, we can't separate it from our self-servingness. And even if we could, if our hope of justifying ourselves lies in our ability to imitate Jesus, then we're truly lost. Not only have all of us already messed that up, right? That train has already left the station. But even with a clean slate, we would never hope to model his character in a genuine enough way to merit God's favor. So what's the answer? The irony of this exchange in the middle of the book of Zechariah is where it happens. And where it happens amplifies the magnitude of how much these fellows from Bethel are missing the point. The whole thing takes place on the premises of an almost completed second temple in Jerusalem. This envoy from Bethel is saying, look, the temple's almost finished, which means we will once again be able to perform all the rituals that are required and hold the right sacrifices and services and be here on the days when people are supposed to be here to please God. And if the temple is finished, that means the 70 years is almost complete. And if the 70 years are almost complete, then that's going to trigger the end of the exile so we can stop putting ourselves through these uncomfortable and inconvenient fasting days. But the point of the temple in the beginning was never the rituals. And the point of the temple wasn't that it was going to be some part of some secret hidden code that when activated would require God to take the next step in his plan. The temple from the beginning was a sign of God's presence with his people. A return to Eden as it were were, when we're told that Adam and Eve walked in the stillness of the day with their God in a relationship with their creator. It was, the temple was a permanent form of the more temporary tabernacle, which was the tent of meeting that traveled with the Hebrews in the desert as they wandered as a symbol of God's presence with them and a symbol of his care for them and his protection for them. The temple was the place where God offered a way, a a symbol in which he said, I'm going to atone for your sin. I'll show you how this works with this sacrifice. I want to invite you into my presence to seek forgiveness. Jesus, you might say, was obsessed with the temple. He spent a bunch of his time there in his public ministry. It's where his mother, Mary, thought she had lost him and then finally found him when he was 12 years old. And when she found him, he said, where else would I be but my father's house? It's the place where he had some of his most Uh, confrontational encounters with religious folks that might remind you of this envoy from Bethel. People who were concerned deeply with the letter of the law while missing what was right in front of them. It's the place where we see Jesus most zealous. 
It's the place where we're told in John 2 that he was turning over the tables of money changers and swindlers that had uh, crept into the practices of the temple. And in John 2, when religious leaders confront him about them, when they confront him about that act, they ask him, they say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this, to mess with the temple? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, Jesus is more than just our example in faith. Uh, we have been called to emulate uh, the character of God, but uh, we don't, we're not justified by how well that we do that. In fact, God knows that, and so he sent Christ not just to be an example for our faith, but the object of our faith. He's the one that the temple was pointing to the whole time. God's presence with his people the physical place on earth where God would once and for all atone for our sin and offer forgiveness. The body of Jesus, God in our, in our midst and his sacrifice on the cross, fulfilling the purpose of the temple, fulfilling the purpose of the sacrificial system, the actual day of atonement happening for us at Golgotha so that a day of atonement every year was no longer necessary. Matthew tells us that when Jesus cried out on the cross and gave up his spirit, the curtain in the temple symbolically separated, it tore in two. By, by Christ's sacrifice, the presence of God, the, what separated all of humanity from the presence of God was done away with. And now, through faith in Christ... Uh, we can be with God again. In fact, the, the message of the gospel is that uh, Christ says he, he went away so that another, the Holy Spirit, might actually be within us. The New Testament talks about not just the church as the, uh, as the gathering of believers, but believers themselves as a living temple, the presence of God in the midst of the world, not because we're so good at imitating Jesus, but because he dwells in us by faith. 